I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. Yeah, it's another Marvel episode. We have another Marvel movie coming out. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. And uh, in honor of the new release movie, we are we are going back to the first Ant-Man movie. The Ant-Man movie, the first movie, has... This was such a weird time at Marvel because of all of the phases... This phase seems to have the most backstage drama because there was the drama involving Thor The Dark World, the drama involving this movie, and the drama involving uh, Captain America Civil War. All of that culminating in Disney deciding, you know what, you guys can't play together anymore. Marvel Comics stay on that side. Marvel Studios stay on that side. They had been a little more joined in the early days. Mm. Uh, before the Disney takeover especially, of course, uh, Marvel Studios was kind of directly under Marvel Comics, uh, of course. But then Disney took over and they were kind of like, all right, let's put in a little more separation. But they were still trying to keep up with like, well, the movies are their own things, but we're going to try to see what's going on in the comics so we don't do anything that too badly gets away from the comics even though we're changing it some for the movies because we have to change things here and there and you know we can't reference certain things because it's still under license to other studios and you know and then there was the whole issues with the television shows and they're trying to sync up with the movies and the movies are ignoring the television shows not like it is today where everything's under one banner yeah, so this phase was very much the kind of growth phase because we'd just come off of Avengers, which was the make or break point for if the MCU was going to work at all. You know, we, we talked about that when we did our our big Avengers thing. That was the point of is this a flash in the pan or is this going to be a new big major behemoth franchise? Well, now they were established and the thing is, okay, what next? You know, you had basically 10 years of building to this giant Avengers film. What, what do you do now? (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, like I said, the backstage drama, even, I mean, there was even backstage drama with, with the Ultron, which 
And when we get around to those respective films, we'll go through all of that backstage drama. But there was a lot of backstage drama. Directors leaving, writers leaving, stars leaving, all cuz just the growing pains behind the scenes was just something had to break, honestly. And it worked out, but at the time there was a lot of people worried. So let's let's kind of go into the backstage drama involving this movie. Because this movie started out as the pet project of Edgar Wright. Yes, that Edgar Wright. And that was the thing that got me interested in Ant-Man. You know, Ant-Man was never really my jam in the comics. I don't think I've ever read an Ant-Man solo comic. Just going to be honest. I've seen him in some crossover stuff. But that was not really my thing. Had seen Wasp in some Avengers stuff, you know. But neither Ant-Man or Wasp were really that interesting to me. So when it was like, hey, we're going to do an Ant-Man movie and Wasp is going to be in it. I was like, okay, whatever. Don't care. And they were like, but it's going to be done by Edgar Wright. And I was like, oh, an Edgar Wright movie I will show up for all day. Yeah. And, you know, even even Edgar Wright figured out that following the story of Hank Pym wasn't the best option because it was his choice to go with the second Ant-Man, Scott Lang, and playing playing with him being a thief. The original idea of the film was we were going to it was going to be essentially uh, two films. We had the first part of the film was going to be in the 1960s featuring the original Ant-Man. It was very 60s centric. Then we would come to the modern day. We would meet Scott Lang as a thief and then him and Hank Pym would come together, team up, have an adventure. And most of that is kept in the final film. But I feel that we would have gotten more 60s Ant-Man action in Edgar Wright's movie than we got in the final film. So, yeah, pretty much when Marvel decided that they were going to produce movies in-house, one of the first uh, movies to get picked up was Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. At the time, this was going to be a standalone movie. Marvel had not yet made the decision to have a connected shared universe yet. And that was that is how Edgar Wright wrote his original Ant-Man script as a standalone movie. And then there was a lot of delays. The script wasn't coming together quite the way he wanted to do it. Then Marvel came together and said, we're going to have a connected shared universe. One of our phase one movies is going to be Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. And that was announced at, I believe, 2006, 2007-ish. Edgar Wright even standing with Jon Favreau on stage at San Diego Comic-Con to make this a big announcement that we're going to do these Marvel movies. Jon Favreau, he's going to direct Iron Man. Edgar Wright's going to direct Ant-Man. It's going to be great. 
Uh, again, script issues, script issues. Uh, Marvel allowed Wright to do what, to take care of whatever issues he had. Uh, even pushing the Ant Man movie further to Phase Two, and later Phase Three, to allow Wright to do other projects. So he would end up doing Hot Fuzz. He would end up doing Scott Pilgrim versus the World. It was during the production of Scott Pilgrim that the baseline for what we have in this movie was really put together. Fast forward to 2012. We are at San Diego Comic-Con again. And this is where we get the first footage of Ant-Man. And (laughs) this is the only footage of Ant-Man that was directed by Edgar Wright. Is this test footage. And it's out there. You can... You can find it on YouTube. And it does have some similar feeling to what the final film did. But there's just this little bit that still makes me wonder what Edgar Wright's version of the film would have been. Based off that little bit of test footage we got. It does look... that, That test footage does look a bit more violent. A little bit more brutal. Yeah, it looks a little bit more brutal in the way that Scott does his fighting style. Because mm. it's it's just an action sequence, so you know it was just done with stunt guys. And it's just Ant-Man taking down two uh, security guards, presumably in the PIM labs uh, during that. Uh, that breakout scene where they're trying to get the the yellow jacket suit. That is a bit more brutal than what we see Scott do in the first film. You know, he's he's using the the shrinking mechanism to like, you know, take out a guy's jaw, and it's like it's Choking very much if you've ever seen an Edgar Wright action sequence it's very much his style Hmm. yeah which i like yeah (laughs) so everything is ready to go edgar wright goes off to film the world's end but at this point it's now coming clear that marvel really is pushing for this connected universe everything has to fit into everything else and we've seen now, through over the years, that has been both a blessing and a curse. Because it's, uh, there are some moments where you feel in these movies that we're just waiting for the next connection to the next movie. I mean, as a lot of these movies are really great, but there are times you're watching them and it's clearly certain characters are spinning their wheels waiting for the next movie to happen. And that's not what Edgar Wright really wanted to do. He agreed to it, though. I mean, he wanted to make this movie, so he he decided, okay, I it, I don't want to do it, but if it's, it's going to make this movie get made, I will put in your connected universe stuff. I will connect my Ant-Man movie to your Marvel universe the best way I can and still not compromise my story. Apparently, that wasn't good enough for Marvel because at that point, they would then send write script to Marvel's in-house writers to do another draft that would 
better have it fit into their universe without telling Wright that they were doing it. Ooh. That's that's when he walked. The, the curious thing about that to me is that I wonder, I mean, he might have just done it on the principle of the thing of you you didn't tell me that you were sending it to script doctors. So if he did it on the principle, I guess, but if he like got a script back and was displeased, that's a different thing. Um, I, I support it either way, but it does kind of wonder if it was the, the second option there, you know, if they sent him back a, a butchered script, it does make me curious though, because in the final film, it is kind of barely connected in how it sets up for Civil War. We get a couple of lines referencing Ultron, and we get the fight scene with the Falcon, and the post credit scene, which is just a scene from Civil War. But other than that, there really isn't a lot of connection to the overall Marvel Universe. There are just a bare few lines that just kind of reference that other characters exist. And then you have the the one thing where they end up at the wrong facility because they don't realize that the what they thought was a storage unit is the new converted Avengers headquarters. And he has the fight with Falcon. Which is just a a reason for the Avengers to just know that Ant-Man exists now. And yeah, set up his place in Civil War, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just a meet-cute between him and Falcon. <laughs> so, uh, it doesn't alter the story any other than, oops, we can't, we can't go in that way, so we have to go in through the main building, which kind of is is the same storyline uh, i don't know again maybe again maybe it's just a principle maybe it was just hey you sent my script to script doctors without my permission yeah yeah we're i mean if here. they if they want it if they want that and i think it's fine for marvel to want that it's been working out well for them so far i support the interconnected universe uh for what it is but at least give the original author the first ability to change that and work that in in the way you want mm. um, would be would be my preference you know if you want that say hey we do we do need you to set up this other movie can you add references to a b and c mm. so edgar wright's gone and but at this point they need to start filming this movie within like two months if they're going to make their announced release date. Because you know how Hollywood is with release date. They'll, re they'll announce a release date before they even announce a filming date. Yep. Maybe, maybe that's also um, maybe that also was a, a factor in Edgar Wright's leaving. Who knows? So they decided to go to another director. The the 
first choice to replace Edgar Wright was director Adam McKay. You know him as the guy who directed Anchorman and Step Brothers. He was going to. He ultimately declined. But he did agree to do further script rewrites. Eventually, the director would end up going to Peyton Reed, whose claim to fame is he directed Bring It On and The Breakup. And Yes Man with Jim Carrey. Hmm? Fine director, but it's it's just reading the, the list of work prior to Ant-Man and you're wondering, this guy... Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that history is destiny, but it it did seem a little weird. The interesting thing is is that he was supposed to be the original director for the Fantastic 4 movie. Not Fantastic, the one with Chris Evans. He was supposed to direct that and then something happened and he ended up being replaced. So that it wasn't the first time that he was intended to direct a Marvel project, um, just for Fox, not for Marvel Studios. Then we get into who was going to play Ant-Man. Edgar Wright's number one pick to play Ant-Man was always Paul Rudd. However, higher-ups at Marvel wanted a younger actor, a younger hero, a younger Ant-Man, and their pick was Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I mean, I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, mm-hmm. but Paul Rudd is immortal. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think Edgar Wright had the, the inside track on that one. Paul Rudd is almost 60 years old, and he still looks 35. Yeah, I want whatever Paul Rudd is is on, because... <laughs> Whatever fountain of youth you found, please share with the rest of us. Yeah, and of course, Paul Rudd, being Paul Rudd, put more rewrites in there because he was more of a, I guess, to have the script fit more of his style of comedy, his style of acting. So while the basic story started with Edgar Wright, most of the film was the rewrite of Adam McKay and Paul Rudd. And if you know anything about Paul Rudd's style, you you do feel it in the, the final project. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the final project comes across very much as a Paul Rudd film. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, to this day, uh, Edgar Wright has said that he has never seen the Ant-Man movie. He hasn't even seen any of the trailers or anything. Uh, I don't blame the guy. You know, that's the behind-the-scenes drama of how this movie got made. So, let's let's kind of get into this, then. Because this is also one of the first of the MCU projects to use that de-aging technology. Oh, can we talk about that de-aging technology and Disney's kind of blanket use of it now? Because that stuff is getting creepy. I mean, it's creepy here. Because we see Michael Douglas, and he's 80s Michael Douglas. It's like he walked off the set of Wall Street. 
Yeah, and it's oh, it holds up. I was kind of expecting it to be a little cringe. I mean, I know it's only 2015, but you know how badly tech ages, mm-hmm. especially special effects and computer effects. Ooh, that holds up, doesn't it? It does. I mean, like I said, it looks like Michael Douglas from the 1980s. You know, you have Haley Atwell in the old lady makeup, and then you have John Slattery as John Slattery. <laughs> yeah, d- d- John Slattery is just kind of allowed to be him, him, you know, when he's when he's in. He, he there. doesn't have his hair dyed from Iron Man too. <laughs> yeah, um, they're just like, no, 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 you know, just uh, put on the mustache; it's fine. But uh, yeah, we've got our our Howard Stark, Peggy Carter, uh, and this is Shield. So there. you know, it's showing them as the heads of Shield at, at this point in the history. The thing is, do you remember when you first saw that? Because we were not expecting de-aged Michael Douglas. I saw this opening night. And I'm like, whoa, what magic did Disney do to make Michael Douglas look young? We've talked about this when we talked about Tron Legacy, the de-aging, how horrible that was. Yeah, and they didn't prepare us for it. I don't remember hearing about that, like, when they were talking about the, the film. Because, I mean, we've talked about the infamous MCU NDA before. Yeah. But I don't remember them mentioning, like, in the lead-up to this, like, oh, yeah, there's there's going to be flashbacks or anything. And you'll see, like, younger Hank Pym. It was just they showed Michael Douglas as like older Hank Pym seeing that for the first time and being like, oh, we have come a long way with this tech. And then, of course, when we get to Guardians 2 and we get the Kurt Russell and it's even better there. I mean, one movie later, we get Robert Downey Jr. de-aged to his teenage self. Yeah, which is even wilder, you know. And we've talked about that. The the thing is, is I just saw Harrison Ford, like, a week ago or two, um, in an interview talking about the fifth Indiana Jones movie. And apparently there are flashbacks in that movie to Indy's younger life. And they've used the technology again. And it seems that they took hundreds of hours of footage of Harrison Ford from various movies from the Lucasfilm archives that were never... It's just, you know, test footage or cut footage or behind-the-scenes footage, alternate takes. Yeah, and they just fed it into the AI program that does this thing. Because it's some kind of AI program that they use. And so what they do is they feed it old film footage of these actors. And it looks for what does their face look like under different lighting conditions or with different emotional whatever. 
and then it matches it to their live performance at their current age and it finds the same lighting conditions and facial position of them at a younger age and it transposes it because they had the entire Lucasfilm archive they just fed every scrap of footage of Harrison Ford they had into it and so it just gave them hundreds of hours of various lighting conditions and facial features and him you know not even acting but just being his normal self mm. And so they were basically able to get almost any thing you could want of Harrison Ford at that age. And so no matter what he did in his performance, it seemed that they had a match for it, uh, which was kind of what the, the gist of what I was getting from his interview. Uh, and it seems that the more footage you have of somebody, the better it works. And that's, the, the technology so I'm guessing it's going to get better because if you have someone who's just on camera a lot and most of us are on camera more than we think now just we take selfies all the time and video of ourselves and you know mm -hmm. and especially if you're just an actor anyway you're now in all kinds of interviews and live streams and stuff so i think that the technology will just get better and better not just because that's what technology does but because we're going to have all this footage of people and, and also because as we've said disney never gets rid of anything no but getting back right. to this <laughs> we i want to talk about this before we really dive into the rest of the film and that is the character of hope van dyne who, for all intents and purposes, is an original character to the MCU. Now, there is a Hope Pym in the comic books. Uh, in the Mayday Parker, Spider-Girl, MC2, the number two universe, the universe where Peter Parker and Mary Jane had a kid together, there is Hope Pym, who is the daughter of Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne, but she's a supervillain called Red Queen. The, apparently, this character was always going to be Edgar Wright's version of the Wasp, was Hope, Hope Pym, Hope Van Dyne, and I guess that was the name that they had for a child of those two characters, and they went with it. But the version of Hope that we see in the films, that is completely original to the MCU. There is no... Hope Van Dyne in the main universe comics. There is a Nadia Van Dyne, but that is a completely different character, a, a different entity altogether that has nothing to do with, with the interpretation of the of the films. So it is it is also unique that Marvel decided to go that direction as well. Again, keeping Edgar Wright's version of that that standalone character and incorporating into into the MCU rather than say anything else. But, you know. Yeah. And I mean, Nadia Van Dyne was created after 
the MCU version, so she's a nod to the MCU version. And also, Nadia is is a name that means hope in Russian, so... <laughs> I mean, it's just them trying to, you know, yeah. play off of the, the MCU in the, in the comics. Um, but... You know, it's not the first time the MCU's created a character that's crossed over into the comics. Coulson. Yeah, I mean, Coulson's the big one. I, I think he was the first one to be created for the MCU that then went to the comics. But um, I like it, and I like that she uses the Van Dyne surname because it really shows that she's trying to keep her mother's memory alive and also the disconnect between her and her father mm-hmm. like i said the mcu is built on two things loki and daddy issues <laughs> so here's the daddy issues popping up daddy issues seem to be a big thing going into quantum mania and also we got to deal with kang so thanks loki so yeah. we're back to the two pillars of the mcu again <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh but uh, let's talk about Scott in general, Scott's entire thing here. Because Scott's whole thing is that he is an electrical engineer. He even says that he has a master's degree in electrical engineering. He worked for a big corporation that was stealing money from their customers. He didn't like this, and he hacked their systems to give them their money back and went to jail for it. That's where our movie begins, him getting out of jail. And a lot of people are, you know, when he tries to get the job at Baskin Robbins, his boss says, hey, I agree with what you did. Take down the man, stick it to the billionaires. I'm with you. But because you lied on your resume, I have to fire you. Which. Fair. I don't like it, but it's fair. Well, this is just some middle manager dork. Yeah. So he also doesn't make the rules. Mm-hmm. And he'll lose his job. You know? Mm-hmm. So, and as he says, Baskin Robbins always finds out. Yep. So there you go. But his whole thing is, and this is a thing that really, really is the crux of Scott Lang's story through all of the films is losing time, especially losing time with his daughter. He lost time because he's in jail. He lost time because he was on the run from the government because of what happened in Civil War. He lost time because he was stuck in the quantum realm after Thanos. So, and all of that is coming to a head in Quantum Mania. Uh, Quantum Mania is not released at the time of this recording. Yeah, we couldn't spoil it if we wanted to. We haven't seen it. It's not out. <laughs> so, and I do like how this is kind of the start of that journey for Scott. The, the chasing after lost time. He just wants to see his daughter. And, you know, because he has a criminal record, his his wife and her new husband, they don't want him around their daughter because he's a criminal. Even though 
white collar crime, for lack of a better term. But it's still, hey, you're a criminal. We don't want Cassie being around a criminal, even if it is her father. He has a hard time trying to find a job, even with his degree in engineering, because he went to jail. You get the feeling that that one incident probably wasn't the first thing. I mean, the movie doesn't really get into it. We only hear about that one big thing. The way his ex-wife treats him, it doesn't feel like that was his one mistake. It feels like that was the last mistake. Yeah. I mean, he's already an accomplished thief, so it's possible that he was a thief before getting an engineering degree. Well, he does say, I'm a cat burglar. And I feel like if your one crime was hacking a computer to give a bunch of people their money back, you're not going to call yourself a cat burglar. You're going to be like, it was one time I hacked a computer. You know? Mm -hmm. But he is, when they're planning the the raid into Hank's house. He's telling the crew, like, they're not going to see me. I'm a cat burglar. I'm a, you know. The way he climbs that wall. Yeah, I mean, Scott's got skills, and that's not like dude in the chair hacker who just, you know, moved some numbers around and gave people money back. I think that's just the one he got caught for because he messed with rich people's money. Mm. Like he knows he knows how to break open that safe. The fact that he knows what the what the safe is made out of, what it's weak against. Yeah, and and so you know, some of that seems a little too you know, the thing the thing he does with the the nitrogen in the water and the safe it's a little too, it's a little less hypothetical and a little more, oh, I know this. <laughs> been, been there, done that. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the way he gets the thumbprint with the, ta- with, the, with the tape and the wax, which people have said, yeah, that actually could work. Yeah. I mean, I've never done that with a sensor. You know, you can you can get really uh, nice, clean thumbprints with scotch tape. And... <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> but the, the you're right in that Scott's a pro; he knows what he's doing. But um, but you know, I mean, the whole thing that whole section was set up to begin with. We find out later that Hank set that whole thing up because he wanted Scott to steal the suit. Yeah, I. I just have a feeling that we we don't really get an explanation, like a really good explanation, of why Hank was scouting Scott particularly. I think he read the story about Scott and the hacking and said, hmm, he'd make a nice patsy. Scott even admits it. I'm the fall guy. My job is to get caught. 
so you don't go to jail, Hope. He doesn't want to lose you. But the thing is, is he was never intending to to give any of the stuff to Hope, you know? Hmm. He needed Hope to, you know... Hope was Hank's inside person at the at the company. Yes, they don't get along very well, but they both know if Cross actually works and succeeds in this shrinking technology, bad things are going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. It just and they need. I mean, they needed a fall guy. I mean, as I said, you know, Scott knows that he's the fall guy. It's just that they didn't anticipate Cross finding out that the three of them were working together. The only reason he went to steal it in the first place was because he needed Scott was unable to get a job because of him being a criminal. He needed money. He needed to be financially secure. So to even attempt any kind of visitation of his daughter, Scott's daughter is the driving force in Scott's life. I mean, even at the end of the movie, he somehow is able to hear Cassie's voice call out to him and which is what gets him to just go for broke and try to get back into the 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 regular world from the quantum realm and the fact yeah. that that is continuing his story that Cassie being such a big focal point of his story he he gives himself up to the government because he just doesn't want anything to happen to his daughter. He wants to see his daughter even be a house arrest. From what we've seen in the, in the trailers, that's also a situation where he just... His daughter is becoming like him and he doesn't like it. I don't know if that was in Edgar Wright's original script or not. But I feel that that is a plus to this movie. That you still have the father-daughter bonding. And that Cassie still sees her dad as a hero regardless of what happens and then they even say you know be the hero your daughter thinks you are and yeah that that line that his ex-wife says to him about your daughter already thinks you're a hero just be the man that she already thinks you are is such a good line. The relationship between Scott and Cassie mirroring the relationship between Hank and Hope. It would take, you know, Scott is the one that understands what's going on. That's why he said he, he's the Patsy. He knows that Hank is trying to protect Hope like he would protect Cassie. On that, let's uh, let's switch it up. Let's let's talk about Hank Pym. Let's talk about that. The uh, how you know the Hank has been protecting his daughter for years, telling that you know your mother died in a plane crash. Your mother died in a plane crash. Not telling her the truth, and which you know he 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 thought he was protecting his daughter from the truth, and in in doing so, put that wedge between the two. On one hand, I understand why Hank did what he did. Especially if you go into the What If series, where we find out Hope was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Maybe that's what Hope would have become if Hank had just said, hey, look, 
your mom was a superhero. She died being a superhero. And that's going to put the idea in her head to be a superhero. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing, too, was that he knew that if S.H.I.E.L.D. got a hold of the technology, they would start making weapons out of it. And that's not what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And immediately, somebody other than him gets a hold of the technology and they start making weapons out of it. I mean, look at look at Cross's plan. He wants to replicate Pym's formula the Pym Particle, and make an army of Ant-Man, Yellow Jacket soldiers that's going to go around the world and protect our nation's interests. And he's willing to sell this to every army in the world, including Hydra. We even get when Hank is introducing Scott to the suit, he says... I didn't put any weapons on it. Here are your your two things. You have a disc that makes things smaller. You have a disc that makes things larger. Be creative. You know, like. Yeah. That's it. And and that that is Ant-Man's entire, at least through this movie, that is his entire weaponry. Is just how you use the functionality of the PIM particles. Mm-hmm. You know, be creative in how you use your ability to shrink and return to normal size. Because we don't have the grow large function Not uh, yet, <laughs> yet in, in this film. So that idea of, you know, that and the ability to control the ants... To help you maneuver and, you know, solve problems creatively. It's a very thinking man's kind of, (laughs) you know, thing. Um, It's not a let's shoot laser beams. But what happens when somebody other than Hank gets a hold of it is, well, what if we put laser beams on it? Yep. And that was one of... Hank's big fears is if I give this to somebody they're going to be like what if I put laser beams on it and just have a tiny army of tiny people with laser beams you know mm-hmm. um, because he he knows how the world works and he did his his best with hope in that I mean technically her mom did die in a plane crash the mom went into the plane and the plane crashed. <laughs> Presumably her mom was somewhere in there. I mean, we find out in the sequel <laughs> that she survived. But I mean, yeah. But, we don't but know that yet. He doesn't know that. I mean, he, he assumes that she's lost forever. Hmm. So he's doing the best he can. And also, she was a child at the time. How do you explain that to to a child you know mm-hmm. your your mom just infinitely shrank forever it does come back though to a, a sense of use your words and how grief impacts people and we've seen this over and over again in the marvel movies um 
is that she says, you know, he was so eaten up by the grief that he just disappeared. You know, he sent me to boarding school and he disappeared into his work. And we know as the audience, and I think she figures out later, that he disappeared into the work of trying to find her mother. You know, if there was a way to get Janet back, he was going to try to do that. But eventually he gave up and, you know, it kind of drove him a little bonkers. But by that point, it was too much. And Scott tries to pass it off as like, well, he was grieving. And she was like, I was too. And also I was like eight. There's a, a difference between being an adult in that situation and being a child in that situation. Both of them suck, but one of them has more tools to deal with it and is also the responsible person. You know, responsible not meaning he was responsible for Janet's death. Responsible meaning you have the responsibility to care for the child. Um, and so you you do feel bad for her in that situation. It's it's one of those, again, and Marvel is so good at setting up these situations. It's why I love Marvel movies. You can see all of the sides of this issue, and you can feel bad for all of the people, even if you might not equally agree with them all. And even if you think there's more blame in one spot than another, you're kind of like, well, at least I understand where everybody's coming from here, you know? Mm. And the same thing with, you know, Scott and his ex-wife and the new husband and, you know, his daughter. And I mean, that whole family dynamic is very realistic as well. Mm. On some level, you can also adapt it to Cross, because Cross was Pym's protege. He was the, you know, he was the one that Hank Pym chose to take over the company after his retirement. Because he saw himself in, in Cross. And then he, he even says it himself, I didn't tell you the truth because I saw too much of myself in you. He couldn't trust him, but. Cross then just made his own version of the pin particle anyway. Does it justify Cross? No. But you can understand that he just wanted to be like his idol. He just went down a really dark path because he was obsessed over the pin particle. Well, also, let's be honest here. Hank absolutely gaslit this poor dude for decades. Ant-Man isn't real. It's a tall tale. It's a fairy tale. It's not real. That that footage is propaganda. There's no such thing as an Ant-Man. Meanwhile, he's doing missions for S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. You know, the, the pin particle isn't real. The, the You know, all this kind of stuff. And the guy's like, no, no, no. I I know that all of this is real. Just at least admit to me it's real. And you do feel bad for the dude because he looked up to Hank so much. Hank wasn't the best 
literal father or best father figure. Yeah, I mean, pick pick someone else to be your mentor. <laughs> yeah. But it led Cross down the dark path that led to, as, uh, as, uh, as they say, you know, without proper protection, overexposure to the pin particles will affect you mentally. And it drove Cross mad. We also see that in the what if, where where Hank goes mad due to overuse of the pin particle. We've got to wonder if by the time we see him, and we get the feeling that it's already affected him, Mm -hmm. you have a feeling that during Hope's childhood, Hank did a little too much experimentation. Possible. And that his, his mind has something a little screwy. That's why he said he stopped. He even said, well, I mean, he says he did, but did he, you know, did he stop in time? Cause he, he does some things in the movie that they're not major things. He's carrying a tank on his keychain. Okay. That's the thing that's always bugged me because they, Ant-Man's powers come from the fact that while your size changes, your mass doesn't really change. And that's how you can, like, punch harder and lift more and stuff when you're smaller. Is because you still have the same proportional strength of a human, you're just tinier. Because your atoms are squished together. So, yeah, he shrunk a tank, but that tank would still weigh, like, two tons or whatever a tank weighs. Yeah. So So the idea that he's been carrying a tank around on his keychain would mean that either Hank is the strongest thing in the world... Or, once that tank embiggens, it's going to be aluminum foil. Like, it's not going to be functional. It shouldn't have busted through a wall. Yeah. But but we also see Scott carry that same keychain like it's nothing earlier in the movie to open the, the door to the vault. Yeah. So, that's what I'm saying. Like, pick one or the other. This movie doesn't follow its own rules. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't, I don't care what kind of crazy rules a film establishes in a fictional universe. You know, you can be like, magic works this way because magic, or you can just not explain it and just be like, it's magic. But if you're like, this is the rule, then. I only ask that the film follows its own rules. That's it. You you can absolutely just not explain it and be like, it works because science fiction mumbo jumbo. Like, I'm okay with that. But if you go, this is how thing works, then stick to thing. Yeah. That's all I ask. And they kind of did clearly establish that rule. Like, 
no, 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 you you still do this because this is how it works, because science. Okay, if if science, then tank. Tank heavy, not keychain. <laughs> All I'm saying. But also that Thomas the Tank Engine shouldn't have been able to bust through the wall either. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a plastic same toy. same deal. Same deal. Yeah. It's it's plastic, and once you embiggen it, it's just gonna crack and crumble against that wall. Same thing. It's just gonna be big and fragile as an eggshell. Um, who, who knew that the big that the big crossover cameo wasn't going to be the Falcon, but Thomas the Tank Engine? Yeah that that was that was funny to me. That that is the thing is you can have big set pieces like that and it works with some things. You've just got to remember your own rule. Yeah. Either don't say that and be like, I can make things big. And then you go like, oh, okay, well, then it would be funny to have big. Just don't say the rule. And then have people go, why does that work? Because big. Okay. I want to talk one little bit about a cameo in this movie. When when Scott gets to suit and he falls out of the of the building, he lands on a car and there's Garrett Morris in the car. SNL yeah. alum Garrett Morris. Why is Garrett Morris in this movie? Because of SNL. Because he was the first Ant-Man. Yeah. He was the first Ant-Man. 1979, Margot Kidder who played Lois Lane in the Superman movies was the host of SNL. And they had a sketch where Superman, who was played by, by Bill Murray and Lois Lane, played by Margot Kidder, are hosting a cocktail party for all of the superheroes. And there's, you know, there's Batman, there's the Flash, and all of a sudden, here comes the Marvel heroes. And who is with them but Ant-Man in full comic-accurate attire, played by Garrett Morris. And the joke is, nobody knows who Ant-Man is. A joke that has persisted up until the release of this movie. So, if you ever wondered why Garrett Morris is in this movie, that's why. And honestly, that feels like an Edgar Wright joke right there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it could also be a Paul Rudd joke because Paul Rudd is such a SNL fan, you know? I mean, at least a little kid didn't fall over a waterfall in a wheelchair while an alien was looking at him. <laughs> yeah. Had to put that in here somewhere. <laughs> That's true. This is a podcast. You can't do that joke on a podcast. He did. <laughs> Paul Rudd did that joke on Conan's podcast. I am not yes. kidding. Yes. Paul Rudd, the absolute king of podcast jokes. Good on you, Paul Rudd. Okay, let's let's talk about the choice to have Scott instead of Hank as your main guy and why Edgar Wright made that choice in the, the original why Marvel kept it and how it may or may not have pan, uh, panned out here okay 
Yes, I know that when Edgar Wright planned it, he was not thinking about the MCU. Okay. But Edgar Wright is good at action. He is extremely good at action. And we know from Edgar Wright's other work, okay, that he is good at, like, you know, heist movie kind of things. All right? I mean, this is the same guy who would go on to do Baby Driver. Yep. Um, He did did Baby Driver after he left this movie. Yeah. Um, But, you know, there's also bits in um, Spaced that feel very kind of heist movie-ish. You know, um, and there are bits in Scott Pilgrim, even that especially the camera work and the setup even kind of feel like it. Um, some of the pacing in the world's end uh, feels like that. And, you know, a lot of hot fuzz feels kind of like that in in some of the framing. Um, but he's he's good at the sort of thing that would come off as a heist film, you know? While I am not saying you can't do a good film about super smart scientist guy turns into a superhero boy is that done a lot especially in marvel that is marvel's bread and butter hulk iron man fantastic four right there i mean honestly even spider-man yeah you know super smart science nerd turns into a superhero you know what we don't see a lot of is thief turns into a superhero uh especially in marvel i mean you got your like catwoman and you know but she's more of a an anti-hero you know starts out as a supervillain and everything but scott lang was never a supervillain you know he he was just started out as a superhero you know mm-hmm. so But, you know, you get to do the heist movie tropes, but with a superhero. I mean, you even get get the trope of, here's the plan while the plan is happening. Yeah. And so you can still see what I'm sure were the framework of Edgar Wright's film of, I want to do a heist movie, in this film. But you get Hank Pym, super smart science guy, as the guy in the chair. And you get superhero, you know, we get the the fun little bit of Mission Impossible through the laser field. And we <laughs> yeah. get the, you know, I mean, we get all the tropes of a good heist movie. We get the setting up of the team. We get everybody in their places. We get going through the plan. We get the, you know, 
it's well plotted and it is the break that Marvel needed. And even after Edgar Wright left, they were like, oh, he was kind of right. It was, we've done a lot of super science, guys. Let's do Thief Dude. Also, you have to have a little bit of average Joe in in Scott. Yes, he is an engineer, but he's not a scientist. And, you know, we, he doesn't quite understand the science lingo that's going on. I think it's the closest thing to an average Joe superhero we would get in the in these early phases of the MCU. Yeah, you get a feeling that what he did at his previous job was probably a lot of just, like, computer coder. Mm. I mean, he can, he can figure out the suit. Like, you, you see him with a little bit of a soldering iron trying to make the suit work. But that's, but, you know, that's established as him being an engineer. That's not him being a scientist. Yeah, it's, he's not an inventor. I'm not I'm not saying that as like any kind of slight. Mm. But he does seem more like he was a high up IT guy. Mm. Like a high up corporate IT guy, you know. Um he was definitely smart enough to notice the fraud and create a hacking, you know, a computer system to hack and return all that money to a lot of people, it seems. Um, so I definitely could not do that. <laughs> um, the thing about it is, though, is that this was the, the different kind of break that Marvel needed to be like, okay, it's a different kind of superhero. He's still got kind of wisecracking, you know... Iron Man, Spider-Man kind of joke lines. But he's got kind of an everyman kind of feel. He's an ex-con. He's not smarter than you. He's not condescending about it. And it's a heist movie. But the only yeah. problem is, is that I'm just going to say it. I don't think that Peyton Reed is as good an action director as Edgar Wright would have been for the mm. project. And I don't think that Darren Cross was written to be as compelling a villain. It falls into the phase one villain of corporate guy in a suit. No, I, I mean, yes, I, I'm not disagreeing with that, but I think it's a little deeper than that. I mean, corporate guy in a suit is excellent villain. I, I mean, arguably top villain. But I think the deeper problem is what a friend of mine said to me when I was discussing this film with them is that it's. Superhero fights supervillain what has the same powers as them. And boy, did Marvel go to that well a lot in the early days. I mean, uh, Iron Man and Iron Monger. Um, Captain America and Red Skull were both super soldiers. 
Hulk and Abomination. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, it's, it's like, here, fight your mirror image. I get the duality of it all you want. You know, one person using the powers for good and the same powers are being used for evil. But I agree that it's go- it's going to the well one too many times. But that would have worked if this was a standalone movie not connected to the MCU. But because it is connected to the MCU, yeah, it's 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 been done to death. I've always found it more compelling when a hero fights a villain that has powers that counter or negate theirs or in some other way complement their power set. To to me, it's always, you know, like Batman and the Joker works because Batman is the epitome of control. He's very calculated and he's very calm and he thinks about every move 12 steps ahead. And the Joker is just, let's show up and throw some stuff at him and see what happens. Okay, that didn't work. Let's run over here and try it again. Like, there's no plan. There's no... You can never guess what he does next because he's just like... Joker doesn't know what he's going to do next. It's He doesn't think one second into the future. He just does. There's very rarely a plan... And the plan is just kind of a vague sketch, maybe. And that's why that dynamic works, is that all of Batman's normal tactics are kind of useless, and he just has to run with the punches. It's like, what if Ant-Man had to fight another Ant-Man, but with lasers? Is kind of like, okay, eh. But if you do a different, you know, and like I said, I don't know enough about Ant-Man to be like, okay, what's the the compliment like that? Ultron? <laughs> I mean, in the comics, Hank Pym created Ultron. Yeah, but they had just used that, you know, I mean, it's like, would have been nice, but yeah. You know. But, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't know enough about that to be like oh let me search through the ant-man rogues gallery and be like "Eh, which one to pull but it just feels like i've seen this so much and the other part is is that as a heist movie it's not very gripping and the part where they pull cassie in is such a tiny amount of the movie that you can't really be gripped by that either. I mean, you can, but it's only about five minutes of the movie, you know? Yeah. Um, And they've only really set up his relationship with his daughter in, like, one scene. It it would have worked better in the second movie because we, we've seen him with his daughter by that point. We know their relationship. But in the first movie, you see one scene of him giving her a gift. And granted, that's an awesome scene. It's probably my favorite scene in the movie. Him giving her that weird toy. 
It's so ugly. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I just love how hideous that thing looks. And then she presses it and it starts talking and you think it's going to be like, hello, I'm a demon or whatever. And instead it's like, hi, I'm your best friend. And she's like, so cute. <laughs> and it's so not what you think it's going to be. So I I love that juxtaposition of it looks horrible and it sounds so cutesy. I kind of want one. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Marvel never, I mean, I don't know. It's probably another doll from another toy line or something that they modified for this movie. But it feels like they they, they could have released that as a, as a as a doll. Yeah, so. Ca- Cassie's super ugly bunny or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I just I just love that. It's it's so adorable. The fact that she's immediately like, I'm going to go show all my friends the creepy doll my dad gave me, you know. Um, I I was so that little kid. Um, <laughs> that, it, it just shows that, like, how horrified the other two parents are and how thrilled she is just shows that even though he hasn't really been there for a lot of her childhood, he still gets her. Yeah. On some level, you know. Um, and I, I like that dynamic and I like how quickly it sets it up and I wanted to see more of it in the film, but you don't really, you get that one scene of her and then you get her in distress later in the the film. Mm -hmm. But I wish they would have shown her more of that. I wish we would have seen him like, you know, fighting for a day when he gets to take her out for ice cream or something and like, you know. That would have been a, a nice scene. Daddy, can we go get Baskin Robbins? Uh, whatever you say, honey. Whatever you say, Peanut. <laughs> yeah, you know, something. It would have been cute. Uh, and I would have liked to have seen that more because the scenes of him and Cassie in the second film are, again, some of my favorite scenes. The problem is, is that it doesn't feel earned. By the time we get to Yellow Jacket showing up and taking her hostage. It just feels like she's a background MacGuffin. Like, hey, Scott, you want to do this heist? No, I don't want to do any more heists. I have a daughter. I have to go to Baskin Robbins and work. It's like, hey, Scott, you know, you want to do it now? Like, well, yeah, I lost my job and I need money because I have a daughter. Like, hey, Scott, you want to? save the world like well okay i guess i have to do it i have a daughter yeah like I mean, hey scott yeah. your daughter is in trouble uh, i have to do it i have a daughter you know like <laughs> and, and you're right it, it is focused on more in the second movie to the point where cassie wants to be her dad's partner on the field and i think is that gonna happen in the new movie we well i mean the- she's literally there in the trailer so i think yeah yeah they just released the toys, so yeah. <laughs> One thing I do want to point out is the fight scene between Scott and the Falcon, which is really good. But I love that Scott tries to use the same technique against Yellow Jacket in the fi- in the final battle, and it doesn't work. As uh, as Cross says, "My suit's made of titanium, you idiot." <laughs> It's not going to work. 
And see, I like that one, it's a setup for the final battle. I, I liked the Falcon fight scene. I think it's one of the better fight scenes in the film. Because it's Scott having to react to something he wasn't planning on and having to use the suit in creative ways. He so, pulled the same trick with Iron Man in, in Civil War, too. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it eventually, you know, they once again, they go back to that well a lot. But it's the first time we see it here, and... It's good foreshadowing in this movie, and it forces him to think on his feet. It makes him get creative in how he uses the pin particles. To the point where Hope is impressed. Like, you see Hope just like, huh, I never thought about doing it that way. Yeah, and it's a another person with arguably powers you know it's another guy in a suit but it's not the same skill set you know see this is why it works better i think than him fighting yellow jacket he's you know falcon is not thinking on the same level he's got a different power set so falcon's using his power set and scott is having to counter with his power set mm -hmm. and so they're not ready for the moves of the other Falcon has never seen a guy that can shrink, so he's not ready for those tactics. And Ant-Man has never fought somebody that can fly, so he's not ready for those tactics. And it works really well because they're constantly having to learn and readjust during the course of the fight. And, you know, and it are... makes for more tension. And, I mean, there are people who have complained, how can a guy with no fighting experience take down someone trained in the military? Powers. You yeah, know, that's that's what superpowers are for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's really good to be able to grapple and throw a punch, but when you try to grapple a dude who shrinks out of your arms, there's nothing left to grapple. Yeah. You know? can't punch thin air <laughs> so i mean that 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 helps but it's a good scene and there's good banter between them mm -hmm. whereas i'm not knocking the actor at all because like i've said often actors can only work with what you give them mm -hmm. And I don't really think that they gave uh, Corey Stoll much. He's a good actor. I've seen him in lots of other stuff, and he's he's great. I don't think they gave him much to work with as Darren Cross in those scenes. He's one um, or two steps above mustache-twirling villain. And they try to explain it away again. He has, He's mentally unstable because of exposure to pin particles. But still, it, he still ends up asking, acting like mustache-twirling villain. And mustache-twirling villain can be fun. I love me a mustache-twirling villain, you know? But you, you gotta give him something to work with. You can't just have him walk up and be like, I'm evil. I'm going to do evil things. 
watch me do evil now. That was me doing evil. Like, say something clever, and they just don't give him anything to work with. I'm going to disintegrate you! Now playing Disintegration by The Cure. Yeah, which I... Whoever thought up that joke, please ask them for their paycheck money back. Um... I I like the cure and I was like that's kind of a not good joke. It, would you I even mean, call that a joke? <laughs> it's a bad joke and I, it it feels like they we we have a we have a, a promotional deal with Apple. We need to put Siri in the movie. I guess I don't know. I mean, of course, yeah. But of course, the the big final fight ends with. Uh, Scott we need tr- something to soundtrack this fight, is what it felt like. <laughs> yeah, but of course, at the end, well, Ant-Man destroys the suit and crosses arms and body shrink to his, now has a very big head. I wonder if that's going to play into the next movies or not. Who do we know that has a small body and a big head? Huh. Yeah, huh. I don't know anybody like that. No, no, don't know anything about that at all. Uh, I mean, maybe we could ask Patton Oswald if he knows anybody like that. Maybe, 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 maybe. I gotta say, we got we gotta pour one out for Anthony though. Anthony, yes. Can we can we just say a little bit about Luis before we wrap yeah, it up? Yeah, yeah, Luis. The I I originally wanted to do the whole. Uh, Edgar Wright thing in the style of Luis, but I wanted to actually give that whole thing some a little bit of respect. But yeah, Luis redoing his little recaps was so popular that yes, they put him in the second movie. I wonder how they're going to do it in the third. How are they going to pull that off in Quantumania? But Luis's recaps, Luis's little here's here's what how we got to this point was so popular that people you know. We got Olaf doing recaps of Disney movies. People wanted Luis doing recaps of Marvel movies. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've seen we want to see Luis recap the MCU. Like, the entire MCU up to this point. Okay. I I would pay good money to see that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Michael Pena just does so well with that character. Mm -hmm. Because I think everybody knows a guy like that, mm-hmm. or is a guy like that. <laughs> if you don't know a guy like that, you are the guy like that. Hey! <laughs> um, the thing I want to see him recap is, I just want there to be a bit in Quantumania where he's the first person in the MCU outside of the Eternals. To talk about how there's just, like, part of a dude's head and hand sticking out of the earth now. Because <laughs> we have yet to talk about that in any other MCU movie. How there's just, like, a mountain range or island or something sticking out of the earth now that just looks like... A dude's head and hand. And what is up with that? So I just want a scene where they're just passing Luis. 
And he's just in the background being like, but nobody is talking about this. And he's just like a dude's head and hand in the ocean. Why is nobody freaked out by this? And then everybody else just walks past him like, there's Louise again talking about the dude's head and hand out of the ocean. I mean, like he's on, <laughs> it must be Thursday again. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah, Luis is awesome. He's and you know, of course, you know, one more note before we get going is the 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 blatant drop of uh the blatant mention of Spider Man towards the end. You know, we got we even got guys that walk on walls. <laughs> yeah, and that was before Spider Man was even announced for Civil War. Yeah, I think that was kind of the first like. Hey, we're actually officially acknowledging Spider-Man in the MCU. Um, I I did want to say that I I was kind of freaked out watching the um the rewatch because I had forgotten that David Desmalchian was in this. He's the the guy who is a uh, polka dot man in the uh, oh, Suicide yeah, yeah, Squad yeah. that sucks less. <laughs> yeah. Um, doing uh accent. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that accent is supposed to be. But, I think uh, it's supposed to be Russian, especially since he does go with the whole Baba Yaga thing in the sequel. Yeah, but yeah, I had forgotten that was him because I, I didn't really. He was just one of those like eh, that guy or whatever. Because I didn't really put it together until he started showing up in like Dune and and uh, Suicide Squad and stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, he seems like a pretty cool guy. Uh, I followed him on social media for a while, and uh, he he used to post really cool stuff. But uh, uh, he he writes comic books now and and stuff like that. He's like created um, a really a really interesting looking comic book. It was, it was just interesting to see him in this. Cause I had totally forgotten that he was one of the members of the team. And I do like that. Originally his thing is like simplifying the long story that Luis said, like old man has vault. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's all we can talk about. Ant-Man. So uh, let's ask the question. Kiki. Does Ant-Man have the magic? Uh, I mean, it's an MCU film, so I have a, a rough time saying no to it, but it's kind of like a... It, it's only magical because it's technically MCU. It's not going to be on your top ten list of MCU movies, you're saying? Yeah, this is like way down. I'm going to say that until Eternals came out, which I think is currently at the bottom of my, like, I'll watch it because it's still MCU, but it's probably my least favorite of the MCU right now. This was my least favorite MCU film. Mm. I'm I'm just saying that for a long time, this was like, the bottom of the technical MCU films for me, like of the ones actually made by Marvel studios. Mm -hmm. I fell asleep the first time I tried to watch it. 
Like, it bored me so bad, I actually fell asleep through, like, half of the film. And I was like, oh, well, some people say it's good. Maybe I just missed the good part, you know, because I was really tired that day and I fell asleep. And But in the rewatch, like, no, I didn't fall asleep during the good part. I just don't really think there's a good part. It's just kind of, it's a movie. There's a few good laughs. I like Luis. Mm-hmm. You know, rest in peace, Anthony. <laughs> Cassie is cute. Uh, Paul Rudd is is a national treasure, you know. Mm-hmm. But it just, I think it really suffers from the fact that you can see the framework of an Edgar Wright film without Edgar Wright. It's Marvel, so, yeah, I mean, technically anything in the MCU's got magic, but it's, like, just barely hanging on with a speck of fairy dust. Mm. I'm going to disagree. I will say it's magic. It's I consider it a, a, a fun movie. I mean, it's a movie that I'll put on in the background if I, need, if I just want to add something in the background. And I'll still enjoy it. Uh, agree to disagree. It's fat. It's fine. So uh, let's 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 move on to next week. Uh, next week uh, is our Oscar special. We're gonna go into just really one of the nominees. Honestly, we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about uh, Pixar's Turning Red, which is up for best animated feature. Yeah, get your panda's uh, suit on and uh, join us for that. And your your Tamagotchis and your boy bands for Town for Life. Yep. But there's there's five of them, though. We'll, we'll get into it next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so come back next week for Turning Red, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues.